This week, CSI Ecology, how to track an aquatic invader. What we have done is added a tool to the toolbox, collecting the DNA from a water sample, the environmental equivalent of what forensic scientists do at crime scenes every day. And a mega canal through Lake Nicaragua could spell environmental disaster. Any oil spill in the lake would be disastrous, both for the wildlife, mostly the fish in the lake, but also the people around it and the fisheries. Plus how wild bees suffer the same diseases as their industrious honeybee relatives. This is The Nature Podcast. The date is February the 20th. The year is 2014. And I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Charlotte Stoddart. To kick things off, resident reporter Thea Cunningham has been shivering her way through this year's meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in Chicago. She sent us this report. I'm here on the edge of the Chicago River. It's a bitter minus five degrees here today and the river has frozen over. For some tourists that might make an impressive photograph, but scientists are more interested in what might be lurking beneath the surface. A species of huge hungry fish called the Asian carp threatened to invade Lake Michigan and they could use the Chicago waterways to swim there. With me is invasive species expert David Lodge from the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. David has just given a talk on species invasion at this year's AAAS meeting. David, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. First off, Asian carp. How have they ended up here in North America? So these fish are the freshwater equivalent of baleen whales. They are, uh, grow to a large size and filter feed. Though they are very large, they eat very small things, but a great many very small things. So they were introduced originally to improve the water quality in fish ponds in Arkansas, ponds that were growing not Asian carp, but catfish or other species. And the Asian carp were simply biocontrol agents for nuisance algae. And these carp are a threat to other fish native to this area by competing with them for food. Which species live underneath the ice we can see here? So the most important species to people in the Great Lakes include things like walleye and yellow perch and whitefish and salmon. And this biodiversity beneath the surface often goes unnoticed, but it's incredibly important. Well, nowhere are the connections between the environment and the economy more clear than in the Great Lakes region. The Great Lakes support one of the most valuable freshwater fisheries in the world, on the order of $7 billion worth of a fishery every year. So it's very important to the people around the Great Lakes Basin to manage that fishery well, including to protect it from invasive species like Asian carps. So you've been trying to locate the invasion front, how close the carp are to Lake Michigan. How exactly have you detected whether they're there or not? Well, it turns out that traditional tools of of learning where fish are, like nets and electrofishing, really are pretty crude. They have been, before now, the best tools in the toolbox, but what we have done is added a tool to the toolbox, and it's environmental DNA, or eDNA. And that is simply collecting the DNA from a water sample, the environmental equivalent of what forensic scientists do at crime scenes every day. So people, criminal suspects, for example, leave a trail of DNA behind them. 
in the same way every organism leaves a trail of DNA in the environment. And we're just taking advantage of that by sampling that DNA instead of sampling the organism itself. And how accurate are these eDNA methods? One of the sources of uncertainty until recently has been how long does the eDNA hang around in the water after a fish may have swum away or been removed. And the answer to that, which we've just uh, published recently, is not very long. Within hours to days after a fish is removed from an experimental system, the signal of their eDNA disappears. In other words, if we find the DNA of a fish in the Illinois River, it means that the fish has been there very recently. And what have you found? Have they reached these waterways yet? Well, unfortunately, what we found is that the leading edge of the invasion of Asian carp is much, much closer to Lake Michigan than anyone had previously thought. In fact, we have found DNA of a silver carp in the mouth of a harbor in Lake Michigan, and we have found a DNA of Asian carps in western Lake Erie in recent years. So it, it seems from the DNA that, in fact, the invasion uh, is extremely imminent, if not already underway. And what sorts of effects are we going to see as they begin to dominate the waters? So we can't know for certain, but with Asian carp, there is quite a lot of uh, information available from areas that they have previously invaded, including parts of the Illinois River downstream from Chicago. In those places, Asian carps have begun to comprise up to 90% of the fish biomass that commercial fishermen harvest, so much so that the fishermen have abandoned parts of the Illinois River because the Asian carps are of such little commercial value. In addition, we see some declines in some species of fish that we might expect Asian carps to be competing with for food, especially the larvae and young of many native species, which also eat very small particles like the algae and zooplankton that the Asian carp eat. And how can environmentalists and policymakers use this data? What are the sorts of ideas that are swimming around, as it were, to try and prevent these carp from reaching Lake Michigan? Well, there's been a great deal of interest in these eDNA results because they indicate that the threat of an invasion of Asian carp into Lake Michigan is very imminent. There are already electric barriers in the Chicago Canal in order to keep the Asian carp out, but it's unclear how well they're working. In addition, there are a number of other considerations, including uh, acoustic nets, uh, bubble nets, real physical nets, and indeed discussion of separating the Great Lakes Basin from the Mississippi Basin again, as it was naturally. So what do you foresee? Is Lake Michigan doomed by the arrival of these creatures? I remain hopeful that an invasion of the Great Lakes can be prevented by the state and federal agencies that are considering the management options. Although we have evidence that some Asian carp have gained access to the Great Lakes, it is still a reasonable hope that they are not in such abundance that they are, uh, have a self-sustaining, established population. David, thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That was David Lodge talking to our very own Thea Cunningham from the frozen banks of the Chicago River. Coming up in just a moment, whale spotting from space and upside-down lightning bolts. That's in the research highlights. But before that... Last June, Nicaragua awarded a Chinese company, the Hong Kong Nicaragua Development Group, 
a 50-year concession to build a canal right the way across their country. Bigger, deeper and wider than the Panama Canal, which lies just a few hundred kilometres away, this megaproject will have an oil pipeline, airports, rail system and tax-free trading zones on both coasts. The Nicaraguan government claims that by granting this $40 billion project to the Chinese company, they'll give their economy, the second poorest in the Americas, a much-needed boost. Concerns have been raised, however, that this project could cause an environmental disaster and that the necessary environmental impact assessments have not yet been performed. In a comment piece for Nature this week, Axel Meyer, an evolutionary biologist from the University of Constance in Germany, joins Jorge Huete Perez, the president of the Academy of Sciences of Nicaragua. They hope to raise awareness amongst the international community of this looming project. I spoke first with Axel. Well, they call it a mega project. It's a 40 billion, by current estimates, canal that's almost going to be 300 kilometers long from the Atlantic to the Pacific, transversing the entire country of Nicaragua. Much bigger, deeper and wider than the Panama Canal. It will have a railroad, an oil pipeline, airports, tax-free trading zones on both coasts. It's going to be a huge, huge project. What stage are they at with the project? It's not quite clear. It depends on if you believe government sources or the Chinese sources. They have not been entirely forthcoming with information that they may or may not already have. So it's pretty clear that the canal is going to start in a small town called Brito on the Pacific coast, then through 20 kilometers of land into Lake Nicaragua. It's not quite clear where it will go from there to the Atlantic coast. And there are conflicting reports from the Chinese company and from the Nicaraguan government as to which route might be taken and when the construction might start. Okay, now it sounds like you're going to have a lot to say about the environmental impacts of this kind of a project. Uh, But before we get to that, what are the supposed benefits to the Nicaraguan people or the government for using their land in this way? Of course, the supposed benefits would be thousands of jobs during the construction and the operation of the canal for the Nicaraguan people. Some people in Nicaragua view the government as making some sort of deal for their own benefit. Now, I read in your comment piece, which you wrote for Nature, that you haven't yet seen an environmental impact assessment. Yeah, that is one of our biggest gripes about this. Any mega project or any project that you would do you would be expected to do an environmental impact assessment first. And the bidding for this environmental impact study should be international and competitive and transparent. But apparently the way this was done here is that the Chinese company itself contracted this job out to another company. This company is supposed to be finished by May 2014. And Some reports say the construction of the canal is supposed to start in June, already one month later. So clearly, this company is supposed to, knows what it's supposed to find. Right, okay. So there hasn't and potentially won't be an environmental impact assessment. I'm sure that won't stop you speculating, though, Axel. You're an evolutionary biologist who's done a lot of work in the region. Give me a sense of what you think the environmental impact might be of a project on this scale. The Nicaragua Lake is the largest lake that serves both as a source for irrigation and as freshwater source. And there are several large cities on the lakeshore that depend on that water being drinkable. And that is one of the major worries that I have 
for the people, any oil spill in the lake would be disastrous, both for the wildlife, mostly the fish in the lake, but also the people around it and the fisheries. It's not actually deep enough at the moment, is it, for this proposed shipping route? Yes, the Lake Nicaragua is huge, but it's very shallow. So they will have to dredge it. And to my knowledge, it is not clear what the sediment and what the substrate of the lake is like. It might be the case that they will have to, of course, dynamite this path for these big ships in the sediment. And so what do you think the impact would be on the biodiversity that Nicaragua is so famous for? The eastern part still has untouched or almost untouched regions of rainforest that are supposed to serve as a Mesoamerican corridor, allowing tapirs or jaguars or rare species to go between the north and the south. And the canal is going to be so huge, a railroad, an oil pipeline right next to it would serve as a barrier to gene flow to many animals. And that rainforest is also home to several indigenous communities. Exactly. There are many indigenous groups that make their livelihood from the rainforest. And several of these groups apparently have filed lawsuits against these plans of the government. So these are all things that I think are worth considering. But of course, I'm just a foreigner who cannot tell the Nicaraguan government what to do. But I would hope that they would recruit people to advise them and to consider alternatives. Okay, thanks, Axel. Now let's hear from Jorge Huete Perez, the president of the Academy of Sciences of Nicaragua. Jorge, what's your take on all this? It's a poor country, the poorest in Latin America, but it's a beautiful country with plenty of water resources, natural resources, and a booming industry right now of tourism. And it's a shame that Nicaragua is trying to make money a quick way without respecting the environment and the sustainability of the country and of the region. You cannot plan a project without appropriate environmental study, and it has not been done. Are you surprised at the lack of action from the international community? It's really a big puzzle for me. And I feel that most likely it's because there's not enough information about this, but it could also be that many people and many organizations think that this is a very, very crazy idea and that it's not going to happen. But I'm afraid that because of that silence, you know, things might just happen. And we really need independent studies. And for that, we definitely need the international community. That was Jorge Huete Perez. And before him, Axel Meyer. Now it's time for the research highlights read by Marion Turner. In a whale spotting first, scientists have seen whales from space. The researchers tallied 55 probable southern right whales and a number of other whale-like objects off the coast of Argentina. The authors made this count using a high-resolution image from a commercial Earth observation satellite of the Valdez Peninsula, a breeding area for a major population of southern right whales. The team found that they could reliably identify whales at the surface and, by analysing different parts of the light spectrum, possibly even pinpoint whales deeper down. This story was published in PLOS One. Wind turbines can produce upwards lightning flashes in stormy weather, producing these electrical discharges in synchrony with their turbine's rotation, according to researchers at the Polytechnic University of Catalonia in Spain. The researchers plotted radio emissions from lightning strikes and captured high-speed video footage. 
They show that during certain weather conditions, these electrical discharges can last for hours and can do so tens of kilometres away from an active thunderstorm area. Lightning causes millions of dollars of damage to wind turbines every year, and this research confirms that lightning is more easily initiated by turbines than by static objects. The research was published in the Journal of Geophysical Research, Atmospheres. News time now, and David Ray joins us in the studio. David, first up, an update on a nature paper that was published a couple of weeks ago and that we covered on the podcast. This was the big stem cell study from Japan. Remind us what that study found. Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago, uh, a, a Japanese team found out a very simple method of, uh, of turning mature animal cells, in this case mice, into incredibly useful embryonic state stem cells. And these are sort of the, the, the key, the holy grail, if you like, of stem cell um, biological techniques at the moment because they are so useful. And this method was revolutionary because it, uh, it did it so simply. So simple, it just involved putting the cells into a sort of acid bath. Um, but now it turns out it could be so simple it's not true. Well, yeah, certainly let's exercise a bit of caution here. I mean, obviously the, the revelation when it came out was sort of met with some scepticism pretty much initially because, as I said, it's fairly complicated to do this and, and sort of seemingly just adding a bit of acid or, or stressing these cells out by squeezing them seemed like a very easy way to do this. Um, so, yeah, so a lot of scientists have, have since then have been sort of slightly sceptical about it and they've also been trying to reproduce the results. And so far there's been no luck. And as a kind of result of that, someone's been in touch with the institute where these researchers work in Kobe in Japan and raising problems with some of the images in the in the papers they, they produced. Are there any suggestions that this is deliberate fraud? Because, of course, there are echoes of the um, Huang South Korea case. I think absolutely not. And one thing that we wanted to make clear in our story is that we've the researchers involved have both sort of uh, spoken up and said, well, you know, we were able to do this. We think um, we stand by our research, basically. So it, I think it's a case of there's a lot of different sort of things going on here. And one was that the protocol and how you did this was uh, obviously published in, in Nature when the papers came out. But scientists are keen for more details on exactly the, the particulars of, of how you go about applying this method because they've not been able to reproduce it. And I think that in therein lies the difficulty. And the researchers involved have, have been very honest and said that, you know, we are intending to possibly publish that and that a lot of the members of the team have independently been able to, to use this method and stand by it. How long is this investigation likely to take? That's a good question. I mean, how long is a piece of string? I suppose I think things are going to happen quite quickly. I think um, the researchers are now sort of uh, going to come out quite publicly and, and reveal the missing information uh, and help scientists to sort of get on and, and replicate this and sort of justify their, their position, I suppose. OK, well, we'll keep following that story and bring you any updates. Next up, we've got a bit of Swiss politics and what that might mean for scientists. Yeah, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Swiss had a, a national referendum about whether to reintroduce immigration quotas. And um, this has been a sort of bit of a bugbear. There's quite a sort of right-wing movement to, to do this in Switzerland and has been for a couple of years. And the referendum was narrowly passed in that the Swiss have now got three years, or Swiss government has got three years to time to reintroduce these uh, immigration quotas. And this is fairly difficult because Switzerland, although not a member of the EU, has a lot of agreements with it. And with those agreements come money from the EU, especially for scientific funding, and, um, and also the right to freedom of movement. 
Right. So it sounds like the the result of this referendum and the quotas that will be introduced are going to be in conflict with some of these EU agreements. This is it. I mean, there's a lot of uh, foreign scientists working in Switzerland. I think more than 50% of the researchers based in, in Swiss universities are, are from places like Germany and France. And therefore, Swiss, Switzerland punches quite above its weight in, uh, in its scientific output. So what does Switzerland do about this? Well, that's a difficult question because it may well lose uh, some of the funding that it gets from the EU because it is going to reintroduce these immigration uh, quotas. And this is something that the Swiss is in discussion with the EU at, at the moment. Now, this could affect things like the Horizon 2020 programme, which is €80 billion Euros worth of scientific funding, which the Swiss obviously receive a par- part of and also put money into. So I guess this is going to affect researchers at CERN, for example, in Geneva, um, the researchers working on the big brain project that's also in Switzerland. Exactly, two Swiss-based research projects which are pretty massive. And uh, I think while scientists are concerned about this, I think there's also the possibility that the Swiss will, will sort this out as far as it goes with scientists. It may well have other repercussions elsewhere, but the EU has currently suspended H2020 funding, so it's certainly taking it seriously. But I think negotiations will continue whereby a sort of happy medium is met and uh, you know, it's not going to be a case of uh, checking out all the foreign researchers from, from Switzerland. But it is still concerning. We have some great quotes from people working in Switzerland, both Swiss and foreign, who, uh, who are sort of saying this is not a great situation and it needs to be sorted out very quickly. Okay, you can read those quotes and both those stories and more on the Nature News site. That's nature.com forward slash news. Thanks, David. Honeybees have had a pretty tough time over the last few decades. Global declines in their populations have caused quite a buzz because of the impact these industrious little workers have on food production by pollinating our crops. But it isn't just honeybees helping us out. Spare a thought for their wild cousins, the bumblebees. They've also been suffering, as Mark Brown from Royal Holloway University of London and his team have been finding out. Here's Noah Baker. People may know that honeybees are important pollinators, but there are other pollinators as well. If we just think about the bees, there are about 20,000 species around the world, and honeybees are a very, very small proportion of that. In Europe and North America, we have one species of honeybee, but even in the UK, we have 25 different kinds of bumblebees and hundreds of solitary bees, and all of those are busy pollinators. Maybe around 50% of the pollination uh, that's done by bees is not done by honeybees, but by wild bee species. There's been a lot in the press recently about the decline of honeybee populations, but how are these other populations faring at the moment? Probably the best data we have actually um, historically have come from Britain because we've had hundreds of years of people going out, collecting insects, pinning them and saying, oh, look, this is what I found. We have better and more refined data now, not just for Britain, but for other countries in Europe, for North America and even across parts of Asia. And what we see is a similar picture pretty much everywhere, which is the widespread decline of particular species and therefore a reduction in the number of different kinds of bumblebees. We can't say anything about abundance because we don't have very good records of abundance, but it seems likely that with that loss of numbers of species, we're also getting a decline in the absolute number of bees too. And as you say, you've been looking at bumblebees and you've specifically been looking at the transfer of disease to bumblebees, is that right? We know that in honeybees, one of the major factors behind the decline of managed colonies and the death of colonies are the diseases that they have. In particular, two recent diseases which are known as emergent diseases because they've recently emerged. Um, We're not very inventive in science at giving things names. 
two of those, deformed wing virus and Nazima serrani, a, a virus and a fungal pathogen, have been identified by people as occurring in other pollinators. But those data really are very sparse. They're sort of, I caught an animal here and it had this disease. Um, and so what we wanted to do was actually go out and see, is this a problem or is this just you know, occasional random stochastic occurrences of disease in wild bees? So how did you go about this? What did you do? The first thing you need to do is you need to show that actually you can infect wild bees with these parasites, because if you can't, there's no point going any further. And so we did that in the lab. And what we showed very clearly is that, yes, both this virus and this fungus can infect and damage bumblebees. So that was the first step. And once we knew that, we wanted to see what was happening in the wild. So we went to 26 different sites and we sampled the honeybees and the bumblebees that were present at those sites. And we then brought those back to the lab and screened them both for the presence of the disease, so did it look like they had it or not, and then actually to see whether the disease was truly infectious. And what we found was firstly that both the virus and the fungus were um, widespread and abundant in bumblebee populations, and that the virus in particular was actively infecting bumblebees. Would these viruses be prevalent in the same way in these wild populations if we didn't have honeybees around? That is the big question. Our data suggest not. For the virus, we know that in honeybees, it's present at a high level because of a parasitic mite that honeybees have. And it got into them from the fact that we move honeybees around the world and it actually hopped over from another species of honeybee, the Asian honeybee, into the European honeybee. Um, and before it did so, this virus, deformed wing virus, was present at very, very low levels in honeybees. And so you wouldn't expect it to be hopping across into anything, really. And so we think that what's happened is that because the mite has then led to very high levels of the virus in the honeybee, this has led to spillover into our wild bee populations. So what does this mean? How do we start to fight these diseases in, in bumblebees or in honeybees? Well, I think the first thing to recognise is that these diseases that we've always thought of as honeybee diseases are not honeybee diseases. They're potentially affecting a broad array of wild pollinators as well as our managed honeybees. And so when we think about how we're going to manage for those parasites, we need to do it from that holistic perspective. So it's not enough to say, OK, this parasite is really bad for honeybees, so we'll manage it, and this parasite is less so, so we won't worry about it so much, if that second parasite is spilling over into our wild pollinator populations. These wild pollinators have a really big impact on, on pollination. Why is it only now that we're starting to understand how they interact with diseases that previously we thought only affected honeybees? I think the reason for that is probably a historical one. We know a lot about honeybee diseases because they've been recognised and valued as managed pollinators and managed producers of honey for decades to hundreds of years. It wasn't until recently that we really... I guess, understood and valued the contribution that wild pollinators make. Do you think work like this could lead us to broaden our approach when it comes to, to pollinators a little bit, to stop us putting all our eggs in one honeybee hive? I hope so, yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a number of groups around the world who have been looking at, at wild bees. And what I hope is that that work is really going to start influencing policy at national and international levels so that wild bees are valued. Um, not just for themselves, but also for the benefits we get from them. And therefore, we try to understand what the issues are with them and reverse them. 
And that's it for this week's Nature Podcast. As always, if you want to get in touch, you can tweet at Nature Podcast or for messages longer than 140 characters, fire us an email to podcast at nature.com. Thank you ever so much for joining us. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Charlotte Stoddart. Stoddart.